John Bunyan, in his book, Pilgrim's Progress, if you've never read it, I would encourage you to pick that up and read it. He explains the journey of a Christian, and he starts from the very early stages of conviction. And by working through conviction, it shows how he has a burden, and the Lord releases that burden at the cross. But on his journey, we understand and we see from John Bunyan's book that that a Christian is someone who understands the death of sin and begins to seek Christ as a result of God creating in them new life. And in that life, there is immense difficulty. But the high calling and delight of a holy life before God outweighs the difficulty that the Christian might face along the way. So John Bunyan in one section called The Hill of Difficulty says this. This is Christian speaking, the main character. He says, I beheld then that they all went on till they came to the foot of the hill difficulty, at the bottom of which was a spring. There were also in the same place two other ways which that which came straight from the gate. One turned to the left hand and the other to the right. At the bottom of the hill. But the narrow way lay right up the hill. And the name of the going up of the side of that hill was called difficulty. Christian now went to the spring and drank thereof to refresh himself. Isaiah 49.10, he quotes it, They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall heat nor sun smite them, for he that hath mercy on them shall lead them. Even by the springs of water shall he guide them. And then he began to go up the hill, saying this, This hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend. For I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, pluck up heart. Let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. The other two also came to the foot of the hill. But when they saw that the hill was steep and high and that there was no that there were two other ways to go, and supposing also that these two ways might meet again up with Christian on the other side of the hill, therefore they resolved to go other ways. But one way was called danger, and the other was named destruction. So one took the way which is called danger, which led him into a great wood, and the other took directly up the way to destruction, which led him into a wide field full of dark mountains, where he stumbled and fell and rose no more. Beloved, it is an extremely difficult thing to live a righteous life. But we know as well that the end of this present difficulty is abundant life. Woven into a righteous life is difficulty. And we must not fall under the delusion that a righteous life does not come with a price. 
Brothers and sisters, what God offers sinners in Christ is more valuable than any treasure this world affords, but it will cost you everything. It will cost you all things. Do you want to follow Christ? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. From Matthew 16, 24, Mark 8, 24. Why in these passages do you think Jesus starts off with the statement, deny yourself? Because though we like to believe our biggest problem is outside of ourselves, beloved, it's not. It's right here. Following Jesus and walking in a righteous pattern of life will be the single most difficult thing we will do as Christians. But the pleasure we can get and have in Christ and the reward we have in him is far lovelier than all the trinkets that this world gives. Friends, a righteous walk is worth the difficulty. The passage we are in today displays an example of righteousness in the life of David. David is a type of example of the way that we should be living. Although we understand that our perfect example is Christ. Now the context of this story, we're in Psalm chapter 26. If you, don't, um, if you haven't turned there, you can go ahead and turn there. Psalm chapter 26. But the context of this passage is disagreed upon. Not many people agree on what the background of this psalm is. But Charles Spurgeon believes that it was 2 Samuel chapter 4. Now, whether he's right or not, he even says that it's conjecture. He doesn't really know. But what we do know is that this passage is based upon a story or a similar story to the one that happened in 2 Samuel 4. So with that, we're going to go ahead and just overview. I'm not going to read 2 Samuel 4, but I'd like to overview that passage. So 2 Samuel chapter 4 is a story about betrayal and murder of the family of the Lord's anointed. Anointed to be king. Really, it's a drama-filled mess. If you were to go back and read it, 2 Samuel chapter 1 through 4 is a pretty pretty thick passage. Chapter 1 of 2 Samuel gives us an overview of how David responded to the death of Saul and Jonathan. Earlier on, Jonathan and Saul had been killed on the battlefield, and David was mourning their death. He lamented for their souls. Remember, this is the same Saul that tried to pin David to the wall with a spear on numerous occasions. Also, the Saul that sought David out in the wilderness, trying to kill him on also one more, one than, more than one occasion. So to put it pretty mildly, Saul and David's relationship was pretty strained. They don't have a really good relationship. And David has continually tried to keep his distance from Saul because Saul has continually tried to kill him. There's jealousy, there's envy, there's anger towards David, and David can't be around Saul because ultimately Saul is David's enemy. So David mourns Saul's death. Now this is important to remember, that David actually mourns Saul's death. In chapter 2 of 2 Samuel, David is anointed king of Judah, but not king of Israel. 
So Abner, the commander of Saul's army, made Ishbosheth the king of Israel. And he was the son of Saul. In place of his father, he became king. In chapter 3, we find that the Lord was obviously having favor on David's rule in his house and not Saul's. Because we see that there was a long war between the two houses of Saul and David. And we find that Saul's house was weakening while David's was growing strong. So Ishbosheth, Saul's son, is not doing that great as a king. And even runs off his commander, Abner. So now Abner, his commander, leaves. And Ishbosheth is not in a good position. After this, Abner comes to David. Now you can imagine this tension here. Abner, the commander of Saul's army, comes to David. And he wants to join up with David. Well, David invites him in with open arms. He welcomes him. Well, after Abner comes, Joab comes from off the battlefield with his troops. And Joab comes into the throne room and he sees Abner leaving in peace. Well, if you read earlier in the story, you find that Abner killed Joab's brother. Killed him. So Joab was not happy. He was not happy that Abner has come to David and David has accepted him with open arms. So what do you think Joab does? He goes out and they murder Abner, him and his brother, Joab and his brother. So now you have a murder happen under David's rule. And the end of chapter 3 is David mourning the death of Abner. Now at chapter 4, Ishbosheth was still king in Israel, although all this drama had taken place. But Scripture says that when, Ab- when Abner left, it says that Ishbosheth's courage failed. So Ishbosheth had two captains of two raiding bands, and one of the guys' name was Bana, and the other name was Rechab. And these two guys came into Ishbosheth's house in the middle of the day when Ishbosheth was taking a nap, and they killed him. They murdered him. And then these two commanders, these two captains of Ishbosheth's army go to David with Ishbosheth's head and say your turn to rule the scripture even says in chapter 4 verse 8 of 2nd Samuel they say here is the head of Ishbosheth the son of Saul your enemy who sought your life The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. Friends, they have just ended the rule of King Saul's house. The man who David would count his enemy, or who Saul would count as his enemy, David would be, and brought David such turmoil as a result of being pursued and persecuted all of David's young life. But what does David do? He has the two men killed who killed Ishbosheth. Now, I've often wondered why he did this. But, beloved, in my mind, David had every legitimate reason in the world to rejoice at the downfall of his enemy. But he doesn't. 
You know, I believe David would be in a situation where he could appear guilty for bringing death on the house of Saul. And the assumption based on the passage is that it's actually what's going on. Psalm 26, if it actually is a response to what happened in 2 Samuel 4, the assumption is that David has been accused. He's been a man accused of the murders of these men to ensure his rule over Israel. Now you can imagine the kind of drama happening in this house and at this time. And so David, David as a result of this traumatic event, we think he might have written this psalm. So let's read the psalm together. Psalm chapter 26, starting in verse 1, reading all the way through verse 12. The scripture says this, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep me away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. Now this whole psalm, if we were going to put it in a tight little statement, I would put it in this statement. The righteous walk on level ground. The righteous walk on level ground. Because this passage really does answer the question, what does it look like? to live a righteous life before God. David is setting here an example for us as believers and for those who read it earlier in in Israel's history, for those who are desiring to be righteous, to live a life that is exemplary in God's sight. How ought you live? This passage is a way that David explains, this is how a righteous person lives. Now, I've separated this passage into five sections, and all of them are building up this this main theme, the righteous man. So the first thing of these five is this, that this passage teaches us, and it's found in verse 1 through 2. The passage teaches us this, that the righteous seek to be guiltless before God. The righteous seek to be guiltless before God. Read verse 1 and 2 again with me. It says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. 
Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Notice the terms that David is using here in verse 1. He says, vindicate me. I have walked in my integrity. Trust, I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. And verse 2 uses the term that exemplifies this idea of examination. That David is saying, prove me. Try me. See if there's anything in my heart that is devising evil. David is saying, look, I've walked, Lord, I've walked in a way that does not bring guilt upon my life. I have trusted in you without wavering. David doesn't just say these things loosely, but in verse 2, he invites the Lord to peer in, examine his life. Not just on his walk, but on his heart. He asks the Lord to look at his heart. The word test in verse 2, the second statement in verse 2, the word test there literally means to test by smelting a piece of metal to discover its true worth. This is an ultimate test of worth. This is, the, this is where David is progressing in the verbs. He's saying, Lord, prove and try. These words are more like looking and probing. He's like, Lord, look from the outside and look and see if my life looks like it should on the outside, or like my words line up on the outside. But then the second word test is, says, Lord, throw me in the fire to see if there's any impurities there. The heart and the mind are literally words that mean his kidneys or his heart. See, David is talking here about the seat of his emotions and his affections. He's saying, look, Lord, look at my heart. See if there has been any evil devised in my heart according to this dilemma that I'm in. In accordance with this accusation brought against my name, see if I'm guiltless before you. He's saying, Lord, don't just probe my life. Don't just weigh me out. But throw me in the fire. And see what comes out. Pan out the dirt of my life to see if gold is there. He's saying, look at my desires. Look at my motives. You know, since he is asking the Lord to look so deep to see his own desires, David is is helping us see something. He's helping cast away this idea that righteousness depends on our actions. But he's claiming that righteousness is a matter of the heart. He's saying, look in here, Lord. Look to the root and see if my actions have not lined up with my words or if my words have not lined up with my heart. It's as if David is saying, whether I performed evil in your sight is of no matter, but whether or not I desire that evil to take place. See, whether or not I wanted the the, the revenge on my foes or whether I took pleasure in the evil returned on the heads of my enemies. Lord, peer at my heart. Beloved, the problem with the laws of man is that they only extend to the limbs. They only affect this. 
We have green lights, stop signs, all these things that try to regulate the actions of man. Man's law says we're going to monitor your actions to make sure that you don't do wrong things. Now, I'm not trying to condone no laws at all. I think laws are good, and I think that the Lord put it within man's mandate to enforce laws. But while man's laws say, do good, God's laws say, be good. Brothers and sisters, God does not judge based on a surface reading. Ponder the fact that God doesn't see all you do, doesn't just see all you do, but knows everything you think and who you are. He knows what's in your heart, at the core of your being. He sees all, weighs all, considers all, judging Not only the actions of your life, but the meditations of your heart. That's why the psalmist says, let the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Because the psalmist understands that it's right here that righteousness starts. He weighs every thought and desire. What has Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, chapter chapter 5, verse 43 through 48? He says, Our Lord says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus is saying here is that God extends common grace to all people. Whether they're evil or whether they're good. Whether they deserve it or whether they don't. But friends, in reality, none of us do. He gives grace to all people, whether they deserve it or not. The fact that you wake up this morning, that you woke up this morning is grace. The fact that you made it over here in your car safely is grace. The fact that you're sitting here and not falling on the floor dying right now is grace. Beloved, it's all about grace. And God gives that common grace to all people, whether they see that or not. And Romans 1 shows us that none can avoid it, that God is good, that He is powerful, that He is glorious. You know, David had every reason to desire the downfall of Saul, but didn't. How difficult it is to desire from the heart the welfare of our enemies. Think about that. How difficult it is to desire from the heart the welfare of your enemies. This is what Jesus is saying. It is not difficult to love those who love us and to to love only those who love us or are like us is no supernatural love. See, the love that God gives us in Christ is a love that breaks barriers. It's a love that 
breaks down the walls of hostility, go read Ephesians 3 and see how God tears down the walls of hostility between people groups, that when people become Christians, God banishes that wall, destroys that wall, and he creates unity in God's people, and we act out of that unity to create a, a, a church that displays the glory of God to the world by how we love one another. But that love cannot be there if those barriers are not broken. What are we dealing with right now in our own culture? Racism? Beloved, the Lord conquered that at the cross. The church can have unity. But not because we try harder to be better. It's because Christ has done it on the cross. He's accomplished it. It's not hard to love those who love us. Church, we must realize that it is that, that what we claim to be justice on our enemies is often revenge from our hearts. David says, throw my life in the furnace and see what comes out. Brothers and sisters, can this be said of you? Now friends, this is heavy. <laughs> and it weighed heavy on my heart in preparation. Maybe it's desiring the downfall of those who, who you can't reach, or you, so you think it's okay to desire the downfall of people that you don't particularly like. Whether they're in leadership or they're just a person you know. Beloved, here's, here's the thing. James Montgomery Boyce has this amazing question I would like to repeat. He says, You who profess to be believers in Jesus Christ, are you following in God's way so closely? that the way of your life you profess with your lips is vindicated? He's saying, does your life and your mouth line up? Boyce continues by saying, if that is not the case, then you need to become more serious about the Bible's teaching and begin to walk in God's ways more closely. Beloved, the goal of this testing that David is talking about is not just dragging our faces through the mud and shame of our own guilt. That's not what David is dealing with here. It's not that we might feel bad about ourselves, but beloved, if we're born again, if we're Christians, we ought to want this. We ought to want a heart that's blameless before God, and the fact that our hearts are not blameless before God leads us to tears. Because we understand how gross we are. I understand how unrighteous I am. And that should lead us to humility. Not to boast in God's presence, but to understand His worth and what He has done for me in Christ. My prayer is that we would all say with the psalmist in Psalm 139, Search me, O God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The second thing that this passage teaches us is this. That the righteous gaze at the goodness of God and walk in the truth of God.
Verse 3 reads like this. It says, For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. This statement, steadfast love, if you were to look it up, it's actually one Hebrew word, and the word means mercy or goodness, kindness. So David is literally saying, Lord, by gazing at your mercy, by gazing at your own goodness, I think that this passage is connecting verse 3 to verse 2 through 1, or 1 through 2. If David is saying in verses 1 through 2, or 1, I have walked in this way, he's saying in verse 2, test me to see if I've walked in this way. Verse 3 says, this is how I have walked in this way. Guys, verse 3 is the keyhole. Verse 3 is saying, David is saying to God, Lord, I have gazed upon you. I have looked upon you. I have desired you. I have put my face towards you. Now have grace upon me. Help me see. Help me know that your mercy is everlasting. That your goodness is beyond measure. And by gazing at that mercy, gazing at that kindness of the Lord, we see in Romans that the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. And there is such a thing as godly grief. So David, by gazing at God's goodness, gazing at God's mercy, gazing at God's steadfast love, we see that God's mercy, His goodness, His kindness that David has gazed upon enables him to walk faithfully. Now you can go back through the Old Testament. Friends, you can go back through the Old Testament and literally find hundreds of references to this same idea. Whether it's the eyes or it's the face or whatever the case, there are numerous occasions. You can go back to Genesis 3. Verse 4 through 5, where the serpent comes to Eve and says, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened. Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Obviously, what we see there is a spiritual perception that the Lord gives them, or that they get as a result of eating the fruit. So as they eat the fruit, their eyes are open to their guilt, to who they are before God for the first time. Their nakedness before God. So all of Scripture prescribes this idea, and I think it rightly represents humanity, that what fills our eyes fuels our walk. What fills our eyes fuels our walk. Friends, what do you pour in your eyes? There are things that I regrettably, and I have had to ponder over this in my own heart, that pump into my living room of whether I want to see my son fill his eyes with these things. Fill his ears with those things. Of whether or not I want my son 
to be hindered by me or not. See, David is saying that what he keeps before his eyes has caused his walk and prevented his guilt. What David keeps before his eyes has caused his walk and prevented his guilt. That when you walk before the Lord and you gaze at Him and you put your face before Him, you get on your knees and you say, God, I want to know you. I actually want to know you. I don't want to know about you. I don't want to read Scripture and just learn the bunch of knowledge about you. I want to see you. I want to worship you. Beloved, if you're wondering why your Bible studies have been kind of dry recently, it's because there's no worship. Worship is the fuel of our relationship with God, and you can't have worship if you don't gaze at Him. Gaze at Him. Look at Him. Ponder upon His goodness and His mercy. Now, obviously, we see this spiritual perception is connected to our physical eyes, and Jesus even gives us more clarity on this in Luke eleven thirty three through 36 when he says, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness, If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright. As when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Friends, Jesus is saying exactly what we've been going through. It's that and exactly what this psalmist says. David says here in the psalm is that what goes in your eye pollutes your heart and distances your relationship with God, increases your guilt, and causes a hand to be up to God because I'm saying, God, I can't be near you because I'm too guilty. I'm too guilty. I can't be near you. But Jesus Christ breaks that. Friends, when we come to Christ, yes, yes, we're sinners. Yes, we're guilty. And we ought to continually feel the sense of that guilt But Christ demolishes that, friends. He took that upon Himself on the cross. Bore it for us. Took the wrath of God for us that we might no longer have that guilt. So when we come to Christ in prayer, when we come to the Lord in prayer, you know what you should be doing? Cast your guilt. Cast it away, friends. Because Christ has taken care of that. But there's no, there's no change in the fact that we'll continually feel it. If you go only to the next chapter in Psalm 27, you'll find a passage that is all about this idea of seeking God's presence. Seeking God's face. Psalm 27, verse 7 through 10 says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud... Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O Lord, of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. 
We see the same idea from Moses in chapter 33 of Exodus. Verse 18, Moses says, Please, show me your glory. See, friends, for a Christian, for those who have been born again, who have the Spirit of God in them, we have this ever-growing, yearning desire to see Jesus. That way, by the time you get to the point where you're about to pass from this life and into eternity, you should want to see Jesus more than anything. And that's the desires of our heart. So as a Christian, the Lord uses the Spirit to well that up, to cause the well to overflow into our lives so that everything we do ought to be a pursuit of Christ. It's an outflow of our desire to know God, to see His face, to gaze upon His beauty, to be humbled by His mercy, and to glorify Him as a result, and to go to heaven and see Him and glorify Him forever. That's the Christian life. And as Christians, the Lord has given us His Spirit to do that. Scripture is giving us a connection here that our walk will follow our eyes. Our eyes look to where we trust. I can have so many memories of my son in moments, you can too, of your own children, of moments where they needed someone that they could trust and they came to you. John Calvin comments on this passage by saying, It is indeed remarkable. It is indeed a remarkable difference between the children of God and worldly men. That the former, children of God, in the hope of a favorable issue at the Lord's hand, rely upon His word and are not driven to restlessness or mischievous practices. While the latter, the worldly men, although they remain or maintain a good cause, yet because they are ignorant of the providence of God, are hurried hither and thither, following unlawful counsels, betake themselves to craftiness, and in short, have no other object to, than to overcome evil with evil. Beloved, here's the truth. We are so content to gaze at the world. Oftentimes it's easier. And then oftentimes what we'll do is we'll gaze at the world and then we grope in darkness and wonder why. Why am I struggling? Why is my Bible reading struggling? Why is my marriage in trouble? Why do my children why are they struggling with why are they struggling with my authority? Why is everything happening in my life that seems to be kind of falling apart at the seams? Beloved, that's for a reason. It's because God has designed us for Him. And when we pursue other things in place of Him, they will not fill His gap. They can't. And so all the things, our lives break into shambles because we do not seek God's face. We're so content to fight evil with evil instead of waiting on the Lord's good pleasure. We see here the Lord say, seek my face. And friends, my response is often, no, Lord, the world do I seek. 
Or perhaps instead of gazing in him, we look to what he can give us. God says, seek my face, and I say, no, Lord, I seek what you can give me. Beloved, there's a reason why we struggle in our homes, in our jobs, our marriages. It's because our eyes are prone to drift from gazing at God. It takes an active effort, friends. Active effort. To gaze at God and to see His goodness. So friends, I would encourage you. Look to Christ. Look to Him. Having Him is enough. If we have Christ, we have all. If we don't have Christ, we have nothing. Absolutely nothing. What advantage is it to gain the world but lose your soul? What does that hymn say? It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Gaze daily upon Christ and watch the world grow strangely dim before his beauty. Many times, beloved, the problems that we face daily is because of that. We scarcely gaze upon Him. We scarcely look at Christ. And we scarcely worship Him. The clarity with which we see Christ and worship Him will be determined by how often you look upon Him. Now the next two points in this passage are from verse 5, or from verse 4, all the way through verse 8. And verse 4 through 5 teaches us this about the righteous. The righteous find the assembly of evildoers detestable. Words like falsehood, men of falsehood, hypocrites, evildoers, wicked. This section is very similar to Psalm 1. The section shows that, or says that he doesn't, what he doesn't do, but then it says what he hates. The passage says in verse 4 through 5, it says, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. You know, the scripture says that he hates the assembly of evildoers. You know, whenever I see this word hate, I often try to downplay it. I don't like it. It's kind of a word that is, kind of rubs your skin the wrong way. But friends, it's there. (laughs) He hates the assembly of evildoers. But how does David relate to this? How does he relate to these men who practice evil? Now there's always a little delicacy here. but Because if you work hard to separate yourself from people in your life, they might think that you're too good for them. So you, as you separate from them, there's, there's a bunch of bitterness that's built up between the other person and you. But you also run close to the other side, that there are evil people everywhere you go. <laughs> so you can't really separate. Now, obviously, when we're talking about evil, we're not talking about someone who murders someone every weekend, okay? That's not what we're talking about. Unlike this passage, unlike Psalm, or first, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 4, but someone who is openly rebellious against the laws of God and the laws of the land. Someone who is openly against, rebellious against laws. 
against the laws of God and against the laws of man. They might be sexually immoral and approve of it when those for those who do it themselves. Friends, they might be deceivers. Someone who is willing to cheat in order to make a bigger paycheck. You know, all these can fall under the category of evil. But the distinction we need to make here is this. We don't separate ourselves because we think we are better. But because we couldn't survive without the separation. Now think of that for a moment. Think, when we're around people, the scripture always already has told us that what we set before our eyes will either help or hinder our walk. So if I'm around evil constantly, I cannot walk in a righteous manner. I can't. Our spiritual walk with Christ would be hindered if we were to indulge with these evil people. So as an act of keeping vibrancy alive in our relationship with God, we separate ourselves from evil. We push evil to the side and we say, I don't, I no longer dwell with you. I no longer assemble myself with myself with those kind of people because I can't follow Christ if I do that. I can't live in a righteous manner. C.S. Lewis says in his reflections on the Psalms, many people have a very strong desire to meet celebrated or important people, including those whom you whom they disapprove of. But I'm inclined to think a Christian would be wise to avoid where he decently can any meeting with people who are bullies, lascivious, cruel, dishonest, spiteful, and so forth. Not because we are too good for them. In a sense, because we are not good enough. We are not good enough to cope with all the temptations, nor clever enough to cope with all the problems which an evening spent with such society produces. Beloved, this is about knowing our weaknesses, knowing our strengths, knowing if we struggle with a certain sin. Don't put yourself around that sin. Don't walk down the street of the adulteress because you will be wooed by her. Friends, it's the same way with all of sin. Know our weaknesses, put ourselves around people who have strengths in those areas that you have weaknesses, and be strengthened by the assembly of the godly and not the assembly of evil. Friends, this is what the church is for. That we are together, helping each other follow Christ, walk together, following Christ together. For the sake of our walk, we cannot continually be in the, sake, in the presence of evil. We will fall. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever lived in a men's dorm. You may have. Um, I have before. I lived in a men's dorm. And I generally kept my room pretty clean. But there would be times when I'd be invited to other guys' rooms. And friends, if stink was somehow visible, visibility would be about a foot in front of my face. Um, I remember walking into, into guys' rooms, and the odor of man smell was so 
strong. It's almost like my eyes just instantly started weeping. I just couldn't control myself in, in their room. And, and the first thing that enters my mind, and pretty much the only thing that stays on my mind, is when am I getting out of here? <laughs> I can't hang around here any longer. I'm sitting on their futon, and I'm just talking to them, and I can't hardly keep my eyes open. You know, the word for hate in this passage carries or communicates a sense of odor. It's a word that's odory, that it's odious. Odory is not a word. David is saying the righteous will find the presence of evil odious. When they're around evil, they smell it. And it stinks. And beloved, if you're Christians and you smell the sense of the odor of sin, do not remain there. Run from sin. So ask yourselves these questions. Does the smell of evil Is it actually odious or is it sweet? Beloved, a lot of the time, the reason that evil is sweet is because your heart is not Christ's. But when your heart is Christ's, when your heart is the Lord's, evil starts smelling and it starts stinking and you don't want to be around it. And that's not something that Someone has to come and drag you out of. It is something that you sense because the Spirit of God is making your mind alive to Him. And you are seeing evil in a new light. Are we willing to sacrifice a guiltless conscience before God for the subtle woos of sin? Friends, I would encourage you to drink deeply of Christ and remove yourselves from evil. Gaze upon Christ and remove yourself from evil. The second thing is in verse, or the, the fourth thing, but the second part of this practical application is the practical outworking of the righteous is that the righteous find refreshment in the praise and the presence of God. Verse 6 through 8 says this, I wash my hands in innocence. And go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. Verse 8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Notice how David seeks to maintain his innocence before God. Notice also the contrast between between verse 5 and verse 8. How David hates the assembly of evil, but loves the habitation of God's house. What David is dealing with here is what he finds most delightful. What delights his soul. See, verse 4 through 5 is what he found putrid. Now he's looking at verse 6 through 8, what he delights in. What he loves. 
And friends, this gets to the heart. This goes down to the very essence of who we are. It's the appetites of our soul. It's the appetites of our will. Is is it among evil men or is it in God's presence? Beloved, one of the biggest problems with someone who is not regenerate is this. Their chooser's broken. (laughs) Their chooser's broken. They don't have it in themselves to choose God because they're evil. But see, when the Spirit comes and regenerates, creates faith, and they choose Christ, they choose Him freely. They choose Him freely. It's not by compelling or it's not like God's dragging them by their toes to His presence No, he draws them, drags them to himself by his spirit, and then they freely choose Christ because their will has been expanded. The Lord has created in them the capacity to choose him. And it's what we call being born again. We call it new life. We call it regeneration. When someone's born again, they're given a new heart and are given the capacity through the regenerating power of the Spirit of God to choose Christ and follow Christ. It is all the power of God. Why does the Scripture say in Hebrews 10.25 to not forsake meeting together? You know, we wonder, we look at that and we, we might think, well, that can be a little bit hindering. In fact, when it's, it's, it can be a big hindrance to people who who aren't believers. (laughs) But friends, when you're a Christian, you should want to be around your brothers and sisters in Christ. You should want to smell the aroma of Christ coming off other people, and you're going, I want to be around these people. I want to be around people who are godlier than me. I want to be around people who follow Christ better than me so that I can follow Christ like they follow Christ, not because they're great, because Jesus is great. And I smell him coming off of, of my fellow beloved Christian. We don't forsake meeting together, not just because we, or it's just good for the soul, but friends, because since God gives us a new chooser, we want it. We desire it. Throughout the week, we're salivating for it. We want the presence of God. We want the presence of the saints. We want to be around God's people. I pray that this would be, that this gathering would be a highlight of your week. It would be the highlight of your week. Not because you're getting to listen to me preach, or Blake, or any other preacher, but because you love the saints and you love hearing the word of God preached, no matter who it is, and you love worshiping God with them. So the command to not forsake meeting together shouldn't be a hindrance, but a delight. This is what David is saying here. He's saying, I find it most delightful to be in the habitation of God's house, where God's people are, because I love his people. Friends, if our hearts do not truly delight in God's presence, in the presence of God's people, Get to know other, other saints in the church. 
Friends, get to know one another. Enjoy each other's presence. Not just here, but throughout the week. Call each other up. Look through the directory and say, hey, I want to have them over. And have them over. And enjoy each other. Learn about each other. Learn how Christ has saved them from their sins. And rejoice with them in the goodness of that. Yearn to be together. Pray that we would be a people that delight so much in seeing God's glory in the gathering of the saints. Pray that God would grow in us a community-minded Christianity. Now, the fifth thing that this passage gives us is in verse 9 through 12. The Scripture says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the assembly. I will bless the Lord. Friends, these verses here, I like to call the great gut check verses of this passage. Because they are stated in opposition to our self-righteousness. Now, if you look at this passage, and you were to take out verse 9 through 10, if you were to take out verse 9 through 10, and you were just to look at graze over the passage, it becomes very clear that a lot of times it appears as if David is trying to boast himself in God's presence. He's like, God, I've done this for you. I have not been around evil people. I've been around good people. I actually delight in being around good people. Prove me. Test me. Try me. See if I've done this. Almost like being Pharisaic. Checking all the religious boxes. I know your word. I do your word. I read it every day. I don't hang out with evil people. I proclaim your wonders. I even love your people. Read verses 9 and 10 again. It says, Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose hands are full of bribes. Why does David say this? Friends, he says this because he knows what he deserves. He knows what he deserves. He says this because he understands who he is in God's sight and has not desired the destruction of his enemies. He still understands that it is in God's power to execute mercy or justice. Mercy is God's prerogative. Friends, how could David enact vengeance on Saul if he understands that his life is no better than Saul's? If he understands that his life is no better than Saul's, then how could he take any vengeance on that man or on his house or on his son's? See, David understands that his life is not on the other side of the chasm. But he is guilty and deserving of punishment, just like 
Saul. See, friends, sovereignty, God's sovereignty, is the great humbler of the Bible student. It's the great squasher of man's self-reliance. It is the great quencher of man's pride. Understanding God's perfect nature, understanding our inability to come close to God's standards because He's perfect, understanding what God has done for us in Christ. This passage checks against this idea that we can build our monuments to God and say to God, accept me. Look at everything I've done for you. When they are but towers of Babel. Friends, God wants to crush that. This is all rooted in the age-old idea. And frankly, a very American idea. Of, I have rights. I have rights. Beloved, I'm going to give you a sneak peek on this little statement, I have rights. You don't have any. But one, justice and hell. See, God exercises mercy every single day. I used to think that many people had problems because they had low self-esteem. But now I realize that our problem is not that we esteem ourselves too lowly, but too highly. It's all rooted in the same idea. I have rights. Wouldn't it be funny to be sitting in a circle and it come around to me, my turn to speak, and I say, Hi, I'm Jansen. I struggle from high self-esteem. We don't like to admit that, do we? But it's true. I esteem myself too highly. We think we deserve our lives to be perfect, that there's nothing wrong with it, like God owes us something. And when we don't get it, we grumble because we feel like the Lord has gypped us. See David's example in this passage and see how foreign it is to us. My my response is often, God, I'm okay with you judging my actions, but don't judge my heart. Don't look at my heart, although I know he sees it. Because that's where the pig pen is, right? You can look at the outside of the house, but don't come inside. You can come to the living room, but don't go to the kitchen. Beloved, who were we before God saved us? Enemies. We weren't just victims of sin. We were rebels against the holy God. We didn't just not follow him. We fought against him. We fought against his rule in our hearts. But what was far off, God has brought near in Christ. What was dead has been brought to life in Christ. Those who were enemies, God has brought to his table in Christ. 
while we do deserve punishment because of our sin against the holy God, friends, grace is channeled to us through Christ. You know, we cannot divorce living righteous and being righteous, for from the heart flow either righteousness or evil. Read verse 12 with me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. Friends, often the problem is that we gaze at the world and we walk on slick ground. We don't put ourselves around people who would build us up, who would encourage us to walk faithfully before God. And we often expect oranges to come from apple trees. Lord, I can walk in evil and still expect good things to come. But that's not the way it works. See, the reason the Lord gives righteous rules is because his heart is righteous. But the reason that evil comes from my heart is because my heart is evil. Beloved, we must first desire to place ourselves vulnerably under the gaze of God and desire that he purge us of all sin, remove from us as far as the east is from the west our sin from us, that we might be guiltless before him and clean before him. Listen to the prayer, to this prayer of the Puritans, and then I'll close. O God, May thy spirit speak in me that I may speak to thee. I have no merit. Let the merit of Jesus stand for me. I am undeserving, but I look to thy tender mercy. I am full of infirmities, wants, sin. Thou art full of grace. I confess my sin, my frequent sin, my willful sin. All my powers of body and soul are defiled. A fountain of pollution is deep within my nature. There are chambers of foul images within my being. I have gone from one odious room to another, walked in a no-man's land of dangerous imaginations, pried into the secrets of my fallen nature. I I am utterly ashamed that I am what I am in myself. I have no green shoot in me, nor fruit, but thorns and thistles. I am a fading leaf that the wind drives away. I live bare and barren as a winter tree, unprofitable, fit to be hewn down and burnt. Lord, dost thou have mercy on me? Thou hast struck a heavy blow at my pride, at the false god of self, and I lie in pieces before thee. But thou hast given me another master and Lord, thy son, Jesus. And now my heart is turned towards holiness. My life speeds as an arrow from the bow towards a complete obedience to thee. Help me in all my doing to put down sin and to humble pride. Save me from the love of the world and the pride of life, from everything that is natural to fallen man, and let Christ's nature be seen in me day by day, 
Grant me grace to bear thy will without repining and to delight to be not only chiseled, squared, or fashioned, but separated from the old rock where I have been embedded so long and lifted from the quarry to the upper air where I may be built in Christ forever. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask that you would place in us a desire, a desire to follow you, that you would help us to run from the woos of this world, from the whimsies of sin, that you would cause us, Lord, to choose you, that you would cause us to have a desire that follows you, that you would help us walk away from the assembly of the ungodly, that you would give us strength in our time of need, that you would enable us through your Spirit to avoid sin and to walk in a way that is pleasing to you. Lord, we understand that this is not by anything but by your grace. Please help us, as verse 3 stated, to gaze upon you, that our eyes may look upon you, and that you may become the apple of our eye. We thank you for this Lord's day, and I pray that you'd be continually glorified in what we